I'd like to see a world where uh, this is the death throes of the Republican Party, <laughs> and we ha- and we have like a like a cons- more conservative Democrats and progressives, yeah. all you know, battling it out for the ideas to get to the same place, yeah, yeah, you know, but yeah. different ways to do it. So yeah, that would know. be uh, that would be good. It's a nice world. I don't know if we live there. Welcome to episode 11 of How We Win. All over the country, ordinary people are doing extraordinary things. We're giving you the tools that you need to jump in and make a difference right now. The best antidote to anxiety is action. The clock is ticking and we want you to join the party. On today's episode, I talk to Congress's most prolific freshman, Harley Ruda. We hear how he navigates this partisan Congress and Republicans in his own district. And he gives us some hot tips for healthy holiday conversations. And yes, we talk about the impeachment inquiry as well. Then with less than a year until Election Day 2020, we're going to start talking about what your action plan is. What are you going to do next year to help hold the House, flip the Senate, and get rid of the worst administration in modern history? We've got some ideas. I'm Steve Pearson. And I'm Mariah Craven. And and this this is How how We Win. Win. Hey, guess what? A year. We have a year till November 3rd, 2020. A year and a couple of days. Yeah. 300. Actually, no, no, less than a less year. Less than a year. Three days when your people are listening. If you listen to this as soon as it comes out, which, which you can do if you subscribe. What you should do. Yeah. Then uh, less than a year. <laughs> It doesn't sound like a lot of time, but it's going to come quickly. It's going to go so fast. Especially with this impeachment inquiry. That's going to take us through the end of this year, probably into next year. Right. Uh, and then it'll be and then it'll be Iowa time. Yeah. I talked to Harley Ruda a little bit about the impeachment. Mm-hmm. As we were having our conversation, Adam Schiff was starting to release the transcripts. And uh, oh. we're learning a lot more from what happened behind closed doors. And soon enough, we're going to be hearing some testimony uh, that will be public, that must see TV. Yeah, I can't wait for it. But uh, f- Steve, read the transcript. <laughs> read the transcript. Did you Steve? see his rally with all the read the transcript t-shirts? Like, well, look, be okay, careful okay. what you wish for. Be careful what you wish for. It's like, like release the transcripts. No, not those transcripts. <laughs> you know, it's actually really scary because what he's doing and saying, you know, release the transcripts and read the transcripts and all that stuff is he's trying to denigrate. He's, he's trying to say, like, all of this, like, in plain sight criminality, right? obviously impeachable offense is totally okay. I mean, he's selling get over it mugs on his website and making uh-huh. quite a deal of money from it. Um, I also believe he's see he has said that a president can't commit a crime, which just add it to the long list of delusional and uh, false things that that he's led his followers to believe. Yeah. And that's also the argument that his lawyers are trying to make specifically to the Southern District of New York that has ruled that his uh, company must mm-hmm. release his taxes that they're looking at. And it, it, this is all part of that Stormy Daniels uh, right. illegal payments related to the campaign, all of that. It's going to the Supreme Court now and we'll see. Oh, we'll see. We'll see if his stacked Supreme Court is going to help him out like he hopes or if they're going to uphold the rule of law. Yeah. I think it's actually likely they won't even take the case and then mm-hmm. this current ruling will stand. Um, he also seems to think that if he announces that he's moving to Florida, maybe he'll get out of this. And uh, as Cuomo said, uh, good riddance, but I don't think that that's going to let him off the hook. Still have to answer. <laughs> and, um, you know, an old uh, rich dude moving from New York to Florida really isn't news. <laughs> 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 Happens a lot. <laughs> um, so as that's going on, the thing that I think a lot of the rank and file people in D.C., are also really concerned about is yet another looming government shutdown that could happen right before the holidays again. He teased that out there. Maybe maybe there will be a shutdown because of all this impeachment. What? That has a lot to do with our government operating, you sure. know. 
Mariah, they don't have an argument. They're literally not making an argument uh, to counter this uh, testimony that we've seen. It's all denigrate, obstruct, delay. That's it. Yeah. I think that what they're doing is they're throwing spaghetti at the wall. They're seeing what sticks with regards to not just the law, but also public opinion. I don't think that that's a wise strategy, but it looks like they're just going to throw everything out there and see and see what might potentially work. Yeah. And it's interesting. I did talk to Harley uh, in our interview about this and about Republicans and his colleagues on the other side of the aisle and mm-hmm. and how they were feeling about this. And he had some interesting thoughts that, um, about them that, you know, I'll just leave that as a teaser for the interview. Oh, but, that's intriguing. Yeah. Got to stay tuned. <laughs> <laughs> we, we talked a little off the top about less than a year to election day, about a year until the U.S. is officially out of the Paris Climate Accord. Right. Trump saying that he was coming out of the Paris Accord, he had to make an official timeline for mm-hmm. that. So he's done that. He is officially pulling out of the Paris Accord. That goes into effect the day after Election Day, unless mm. he is not reelected. So, in case you were on the fence about whether or not you wanted to reelect Trump, mm. and you were okay with the fascism, the racism, the misogyny, and the criminality, but you really care about the environment. Mm-hmm. Now's your chance to stand up for the environment, elect a Democrat, and get rid of Trump. Yeah. Save the Paris Agreement. Uh, the, the timing is, is, is really interesting. Um, this is an issue that's going to mobilize a lot of Democrats. It's going to mobilize a lot of young Republicans, too, potentially. You think so? I think so. Climate change is more of an issue with that group than it is with the rest of their parties. Oh, my gosh. So I'm going to tease the interview again because Harley Ruda is the chair of the subcommittee on the environment and oversight. Mm -hmm. And so he is tasked with uh, a lot of this work. And he does have some interesting things to say about that. Oh, great. I can't wait to hear about it. More teasers. So if he's not elected... If he's not reelected, then the change doesn't That's my in. understanding. But they don't take office for another couple months. Yeah, I, so. I know, but I'm just saying what oh. I heard oh. from a guy on the street okay. who was asking for change okay. and ranting about the Paris Climate Accord. <laughs> <laughs> but he seemed knowledgeable. Okay. Also, we need to address homelessness in our city. Yeah, we really do. Um. And last but not least, when we're (laughs) – a lot of asides here. Um, Last but not least, as we're recording this, people around the country are voting. I know. I want to know the results. It's election day, and we've been pumping up Virginia. It's been exciting to see a lot of people out there canvassing. Yeah. Thousands and thousands of letters. All of you guys who wrote letters, thank you so much for you who are making phone calls and have made phone calls all all GOTV weekend. Great job. Great job. Even if you don't live in a state that has an election on Tuesday, uh, this is your election day too. You, if you did any work to help make this happen, then this, this is, this is your day. And uh, hopefully, as you're listening to this, <laughs> you're getting some of the results that you want to hear. <laughs> I know it's going to be close, and uh, and we're just going to keep fighting no matter what. Yeah, and I would also add that Mississippi and Kentucky, where Trump has been for a couple of days, it's going to be interesting to see what happens with the folks that he got behind there. Because I think that if if they win, then we have our work cut out for us in 2020 a little bit more than perhaps we had hoped to going into the, into the new year. Uh, and if the Democrats come out on top, even going up against him directly, then um, that is a positive sign for things to come. That's right. And no matter what happens, we need to have a three-alarm fire in our heads about the work we need to do Mm -hmm. in this next year. Mm -hmm. If you haven't gotten involved yet, we need you to get involved now. We are a year out, Mm -hmm. and we know that the Republicans are going to cheat. They're going to uh, disenfranchise voters. There's going to... 
actively still, even with this impeachment inquiry going on, trying to engage the Ukraine mm-hmm. and um, and bad actors in Russia and Iran. This is all happening right now. We need to do everything we can so that by the time we hit November 4th, 2020, I want everyone listening to this to, to know that they did everything they could to make sure that we got rid of this guy, took back the Senate, and helped restore fair <laughs> district redistricting, lines in, yeah. in redistricting in these local legislatures. Yeah. Whenever you get tired in the coming months, think about how you felt the day after Election Day on in November of 2016 and use that to really rally and get out there. Yeah. And also how you felt if you were volunteering in the midterms the day after Election Day in 2018. Right? Yeah, that felt pretty good. Felt really good. I want more of that feeling. I want way less of the 2016 feeling. It's a good goal. So how are people going to do that? Well, first of all, if you haven't signed up for Swing Left yet, go ahead and do that. Go to swingleft.org, sign up, and uh, and then you'll be in the loop for different opportunities that will come your way. We've got some exciting announcements coming down the road here and a lot of opportunities for you to get involved. We're going to keep doing the stuff we have been doing. We're registering voters. We're mm-hmm. focusing on our super states. These are states that have presidential, Senate, and in some cases, local legislatures that we're working on. So it's bang for your volunteer buck right there, both literal bucks, you know, places for you to donate money, mm-hmm. and also your, your valuable time. And also, we're building a big megaphone for the resistance. Here's an easy thing you can do. Mm-hmm. Oh, subscribe and share the podcast. Yeah, we always talk about it at the end of the show. Why not right now? Yeah, we're going to give people a lot of great tools and ideas in the coming weeks and months. And so start your training now. Start start listening to your coaches, Steve and Mariah here, um, yep. and then share it with your friends because all of this stuff is way more fun and easier to do when you have friends along. Invite five friends. Here's your call to action. This is this week's to-do list. Okay. Invite five friends to subscribe to this podcast on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts and uh, bring them into this party. I like it. I'm going to do it. I've got five. I'm sure I have five people I haven't told about this. Really? Well. That's, you're one of the co-hosts. I know. And I've told a lot of people, but like I could, I could be talking to people online at Starbucks and telling them about it. You know, actually, if I go through my contact list, there's definitely five people that I haven't told about the podcast for sure. Oh yeah. In my phone, there's like people I've actively avoided talking to for years. What a great excuse. <laughs> to... get <laughs> hey, remember me? I'm sorry about what happened five years ago. I want to apologize. And also, I've got a podcast I want you to subscribe to. Uh, one listener at a time. We're, we're healing rifts. We're crossing divides. <laughs> uh, so you had an opportunity recently to sit down with Congressmember Harley Ruda. What a great guy. Mm-hmm. I interrupted his call time. Whoa. Which was, you yeah, know, wow. if you don't know what call time is, that's the time that elected officials are stuck in a room with some of their campaign staff going through a list of supporters, calling them up to get more money, which is very important. Especially in, in Harley's case, he's actually been outraised by his opponent in that district. Oh, we have some work to do there then. Uh, this is yeah. an Orange County for years Republican district. There's some 30 years. There are some staffers who may not be so happy with you right now, but I think that our listeners <laughs> will get a lot of value out of this interview. They will. He was cool to take a break from uh, asking for money to talk to us. <laughs> so let's hear the interview. For the ones who get going when the going gets tough and the ones who know we're tougher together. For the pathfinders breaking new ground, Granger offers supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as fast access to experts and 24-7 customer support. Because we know you have people depending on you. So you can always depend on us. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Freshman Representative Harley Ruda represents the 48th District of California in the heart of the once reliably Republican Orange County. He's had a prolific first six months in office, introducing more legislation than any other freshman Congress member. 
Congressman Ruta grew up in a Republican household, but left the Republican Party in 1997. He now holds a seat in Congress that was held by Republican Dana Rohrabacher, and he has a unique take on how to navigate a swing district and get work done in a very partisan environment. Congressman Ruta, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. Hey, Steve, great to be here with you and Swing Left. Yeah. So you grew up in Ohio in a Republican family, um, as I said, and were a registered Republican until 1997. What was the tipping point that made you leave the party? A tipping point was really the contract with America and Newt Gingrich taking the Republican Party in a very different direction. Um, and my wife. Those were the two factors. So and the your first, wife. Yeah. The, so the first one was the, uh, if you look at the Republican Party prior to 1997, uh, in, in, you know, the days under uh, Reagan, you mm-hmm. had a Republican par- Party that believed in environmental stewardship. Many of its members believed in a woman's right to choose. Uh, many of them believed that everyone should have the right to vote. And they also believed in uh, uh, economic uh, security and stability and opportunity and for everyone. And most of those issues have been put on the back burner or pushed off the stovetop altogether with right. the current administration. And then my wife was uh, uh, has been a lifelong Democrat. And uh, so, you know, she, she helped me see the light. You couldn't do the Kellyanne George thing, right? <laughs> no. <laughs> I don't know how that even is. I don't it? know how that works either. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, that's interesting. And, and Newt Gingrich changed a lot of things for sure. I grew up, right. in, I grew up in DC and I, I remember just him having all of the representatives stay in their districts and not move their families out was pivotal because yeah. I went to school with kids from both sides of the aisle and people were forced into some kind of social setting. I mean, they would battle it out for ideas in, in Congress and then have, like, you know, navy bean soup together in the dining room. But uh, that just doesn't exist anymore. No, it does not. And some people do say that one of the reasons it's become more partisan is the fact that uh, – uh, the legislators don't spend time like they used to in D.C. And I do think that probably is a factor, but I actually think the the greatest reasons the partisanship is so horrible right now starts with gerrymandering. Mm. And then you add into that uh, Citizens United and all the dark, soft money that comes in and pushes for the uh, hardest of the right and the hardest of the left and throw in a dose of social media where we all tend to stay focused in our own bubbles and look for information that uh, supports our viewpoints without trying to understand the other side has really created this very partisan atmosphere. Yeah, yeah. And we're seeing how well Trump specifically and the GOP has weaponized that social media. Absolutely. Yeah, Yeah, I don't know what happened to the idea of uh, defamation and slander, but apparently uh, what can be said and, and, and put out there for people to hopefully buy into is uh, extraordinarily bad for our country right now. So sounds like your household is now pretty harmonious. <laughs> <laughs> it is, yes. Um, but the holidays are coming up and there's a lot of mixed households and people having or avoiding uncomfortable conversations over Turkey. How do you talk to uh, you know Republicans in your own family or, you know, give us some tips, some hot tips for relating to Republicans? <laughs> it, well, it's hard. It really is hard. But I do think that talking to each other and listening without trying to convince someone else hmm. of your why your position is correct and theirs is wrong. And when we went through orientation for this job, uh, we uh, had a speaker come in who was a, a little right of center, I'd call him a libertarian. Okay. And he asked us, two questions at the end of his presentation. Uh, The first question he asked, he said, um, raise your hand if you love somebody from the other party. Hmm. And pretty much everybody in the room raised their hand. And then he said, who here thinks our country would be better with only one party? And no hands went up. And I thought it was a poignant moment because we have been talking past each other. And his whole point is that you know, when we start having contempt for those who have contrary viewpoints, that's really when we are becoming so polarized that we can't even talk to try and understand each other's position and find the common ground. Yeah. And, and that's why I ran for office was the idea that, look, we have a heck of a lot more in common than what separates us. Yeah. And I, I mean, these are the conversations that I want to have. I want to understand how to how to better communicate and bridge these gaps. But it's difficult. It's really difficult for me when you see such hateful, racist policy by the other side. And I, I, my brother's a Republican. I love him very much. He worked in both Bush administrations, but he's 
had no desire to work in the Trump administration. So I appreciate him for that. So yeah, it's 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 hard for me because full disclosure, like it, when you're enabling racists, I don't have a lot to say to you. Yet this is our country; we need right. to figure out a way to have these conversations. Well, I totally agree with you there. And the, the unfortunate part is, we've got a, a base for Trump of approximately thirty percent, mm-hmm. and uh, a certain portion of that group falls into what you just said. And we have a president who uh, stokes that uh, anti-Semitism, taking shots at people left and right, Right. uh, uh, creating that hatred. And what it has taught us is that we have a long way to go. I think a lot of us thought we had a little bit more uh, kumbaya in our country than we do. And the president not only is stoking that hatred, it's also causing us to realize that we have a lot of work in front of us. And we're not going to get there as long as this guy's in, in power. And it wasn't Donald Trump that created this. This this was already there. Like he was able to, as, I, as we said, I, I think it's a little bit of both. But, I, you yeah. know, I, I think that, uh, yes, some of it was there, but has it increased because of his lack of leadership? Absolutely. White supremacy is on the rise because right. it's, be, it's being given free reign by this president. And it's being given free reign by Republicans who turn a blind eye right. to what this president's doing. And so while it was there, it's growing because of this president. We're seeing it here in this district. Unfortunately, this yeah. district is is affected uh, fairly disproportionately in in a high uh, percentage uh, with white supremacy. And it goes back to the roots of the area, um, as well as the uh, former member of Congress here was uh, uh, that we defeated, who, mm-hmm. who tended to embrace that, that mentality and that support. I'm glad he is out. I'm glad you are in. <laughs> it's a big improvement. Uh, Thank you. So, uh, but that's a good segue. Um, I want to hear a little bit about your work with Human Rights Watch. Before you got into office, you know, you spent about 10 years working with them, fighting homelessness and domestic violence. Um, What kind of work were you doing and and what was that experience like? How did it open you up to organizing? Well, it's a great organization. And and prior to that, what helped me in my journey to where I am now was, uh, I can't emphasize enough the influence my wife has had on me. <laughs> and when we were in our 20s... Me too. Not your wife, my wife. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. And uh, when we were in our 20s, uh, she read an article about the plight of homeless families. Um, it was in the New Yorker magazine. And at that time, uh, and still often across the country, uh, you know, you lose your job, uh, you, you lose your house, you live in a motel, you run out of money, you live in your car, and then you make the very difficult decision to go to a, a shelter. And uh, typically what would happen is they would send the uh, men and the uh, 15 uh, and older boys to the men's shelter and the women and the smaller, uh, younger children to the women's shelter. When all they have left is each other, they're Mm. breaking up the family. So she decided right then and there we were going to build a shelter for homeless families. um, And we did. And was this here? Uh, or this was in, in Columbus, Ohio, in Ohio, where, Ohio, where we right. used to live, right? And it was really uh, cool to bring all these young people together to fight for a cause that you know was not partisan. It was just the right thing to do. Right. And you know, we've been involved and engaged in that type of uh, work and support uh, onward. And you mentioned uh, Human Rights Watch, just a great organization because they take on human rights violations anywhere and everywhere around the world of any kind. And they do it with embedded uh, journalists, really, that are basically documenting uh, what is going on so that they can bring true change to uh, uh, in addressing those issues. We recently saw that uh, in the news that the uh, number of families separated was actually understated by the Department of Homeland Security. Upwards of 3,000 uh, families were actually separated, children separated from their families. What's what's being done? I'm, I'm kind of jumping ahead to the work right now, but since we talked about Human Rights Watch and all of that, you know, what's being done to hold these people accountable and, and, and get these families back together? Well, I'll be candid. It's difficult 
to hold this administration accountable for yeah. what will end up being uh, a, a dark uh, uh, spot on the history of this country uh, up there with how we treated the Japanese Americans here in the U.S. and previous uh, his- right. historical moments that we should be all We should be good. learning from that history. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But the problem in trying to hold this administration accountable is the fact that unlike previous administrations, they simply will not meet their constitutional obligations to provide documentation and witnesses for oversight committees. I serve on oversight. Right. And – We have repeatedly seen the administration refuse to even provide appropriate information and witnesses. So when we try to dig in to investigate what has happened with the separation of families at the border, we're getting stonewalled. And while we've passed legislation, we don't have a, a, a partner in the Senate. No. And so it's, it's difficult to hold the administration accountable. However, and I said this a lot when I was campaigning against a 30-year incumbent, that because I often would be challenged, how can you make a difference as a freshman versus this 30-year incumbent? And as a, uh, an elected official, we have a podium and a microphone wherever we go, and we need to use those to shine a bright light and educate people as to what's going on. So all of us are continuing to do that, and hopefully we will overcome this travesty. I think that's a really great point and something that, that we can be doing as citizens, too. When we're so distracted by impeachment and the presidential race taking up all the air in the room, taking up all the news cycle, it's really on us to amplify the things that aren't being reported in the news. So, True. And, and you know, from a broad perspective, uh, I've had my team in D.C. Uh, do this for me every single week because I got very tired of the narrative that all Democrats want to do is litigate and not legislate. So right. on a weekly basis, I've had them pull the number of bills that has passed the House and the percentage of those bills that have passed the Senate. And uh, we are, what is that percentage? Um, I'm going to get to it. Um, <laughs> so it's, we've passed over 300 bills in the House, and the vast majority of them are bipartisan. Uh, everything from uh, addressing gun violence to right. um, uh, yes, yeah, to to making uh, prescription drugs uh, uh, cheaper, to addressing Violence Against Women's Act. Um, there's just a slew of really good legislation there that directly impacts our country and our communities. Unfortunately. Mm-hmm. 14% of those bills have been passed by the Senate. Wow. And so when you talk about what is preventing uh, good legislation being addressed, it clearly sits at the feet of Mitch McConnell. But, Steve, I even went a step further because I wanted to make sure that in the context of history, uh, that statistic is an anomaly or not. So I went back and had my team pull from when Obama was a president, Harry Reid, Democrat, led the Senate, right. and the House was controlled by the Republicans. What percentage of bills was passed by the Senate that was passed by the Republican House? It was almost 40%. So it's really important to keep that in mind, that what we're seeing happen now is completely uh, something that we, we've not seen ever by the leader of the Senate. The self-proclaimed Grim Reaper. Yes. I want to get more into the work you're doing. I kind of... I kind of sidetracked because I was like, I don't want to bring up family separation. But then I'm like, how could I not bring up family separation? Um, it's an important issue. Yeah, it is. And, and the challenge with this president is we've got so many important issues. Right. Yeah, it's um, it's a lot. It's a lot. Um, but I want to hear about why you uh, first started running. I mean, you, you were a lawyer uh, before joining your family's real estate business, successful in real estate. This is... Uh, a lot of work. You were coming into Congress at, uh, you know, okay, an amazing time in history, an amazing time to be an elected representative in the federal level. But you didn't have to do this. You'd never run for office before. What propelled you to step in? Yeah, it's uh, as you mentioned. I'm I'm a recovering attorney and uh, and, and a businessman for many years. And this, uh, the good news is, it's probably the biggest decision with the least amount of due diligence I've ever done in my life. <laughs> if I had done the appropriate due diligence, maybe I wouldn't be here. But right. uh, uh, you know, it was interesting. It was uh, I, I thought about running for office when I was younger, and I kind of felt that uh, that ship had uh, sailed, and and there really wasn't an opportunity to do it. It uh, uh, now that I'm in my late fifties. And, um, 
After the 2016 you election. You stay in shape. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> after the 2016 election, I was uh, incredibly frustrated, as lots of people were. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't just frustrated that Trump had won. I was frustrated that the election had come down to personalities versus issues. You know, who did you uh, like more or who did you hate less? Right. And uh, that's not what our founders wanted from us. Our founders wanted us to discuss issues and fight for what you believe in, but ultimately reach across the aisle and put country and community first. And I also believe that most Americans are between the 20-yard lines, and the media tends to focus on what separates us versus what brings us together. So um, my wife encouraged me to explore running. I knew it was your wife. Yeah, yep, it was <laughs> coming. And so we sat down with about five or six activists at Zinc Cafe in Laguna Beach, mm. And they started peppering me with questions to, to determine where I was on, on positions. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, one thing kind of led to another. And then I met with the— That zinc crowd is tough, by the yeah, way. They, it's amazing they, you they got through there. Yeah, they can be tough. And then, <laughs> then I met with a, a guy who was kind of the dean of uh, democratic politics in Orange County, uh, kind of like kissing the ring. And I remember mm-hmm. at the end of it, he said, you know, you just might have a chance of winning which was kind of like a backhanded compliment. But I said, why is that, Frank? And he says, because you look like a Republican, which, okay, <laughs> that's probably true in this district that that could help. But the most amazing thing is that happened was uh, just the, the way volunteers and predominantly women hmm. uh, took this campaign to where it got to, the finish right. line and winning. You know, we uh, ended up, by the time we got to the general, 8,000 volunteers. And we had an incredible uh, uh, field rep who took care of all of them. Who is that? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Who is that? Uh, she's now our campaign manager for 2020. She's sitting right behind she, me. She is. <laughs> so I had to put, put some good words in there. <laughs> but th- this truly was a grassroots effort from day one. And the amount of doors that we knocked on, the amount of support that we had, uh, it was unparalleled. It was crazy. I remember coming down. Um, this is going to be very name droppy, but um, I got to come down and, and help Marissa Tomei kick off one of the canvases. And at that point, I think it was on. A, I think that was a Sunday of GOTV, and you'd already run through your entire universe. We call it universe. These are the voters that you're going to talk to uh, at doors, like three times. Four times I'm hearing from Alyssa behind me. Four times. <laughs> and we're just now starting to open it up to um, some other people that you could now afford the opportunity to have conversations with. I mean, that's, that's unheard of, especially, um, you know, behind the orange curtain, as we used to say. Yeah, it truly was miraculous when we look back. And, and again, mostly that was just so I could drop Marissa Tomei's name. <laughs> <laughs> you know, in the primary, we've got the jungle primary here in California, and there were 16 people on the ballot. And the incumbent, in the, the top two vote getters move on. So the incumbent, in this case, Dana Rohrbacher, the 30-year uh, member of Congress, right. is going to get one of those two spots. Right. So the other 15 people are fighting for that second spot. And I did not get the Democratic Party's endorsement. And our volunteer base, our activists, uh, helped make sure we got that second spot. And then, to me, the most amazing— That was a very close— Really close. Yeah, we were literally by 125 votes out of 173,000 cast. Amazing. It was crazy. But to me, the the moment that was definitely one of the most poignant moments of the campaign— was after the primary in June of 18, we kind of gave people about uh, six weeks off before we, we <laughs> got ready for the general. Right. And we had this event uh, that was our, our kickoff event. We expected about 200, 250 people to show up. About 1,000 people showed up. Uh, as, as Donald Trump would say, it was the largest group of <laughs> activists that had ever showed up in the history of Orange County. Right. Um, actually, it might have been. Right. But people had lawn chairs they had set up, and it was that outpouring that really was uh, a great moment because it, it, it told us that we had the power of the people behind us. And one of my favorite stories was this guy comes up to me and said that— um, 
uh, you know, I've never volunteered for a campaign before. My wife brought me out here. And I said, hey, that's okay. I've never run for office before. And my wife got me out here as well. <laughs> right. So let's work out and make, make this happen together. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was at that event as well. You were. You handed the check. I handed the big oversized that's golf right. check from Swing that's Left, right. which was such a, a fun thing to be able to do. It was great. When you have that big oversized golf check, you're everyone's favorite person. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, I really thanks to... Uh, uh, everything Swing Left had, has done to make sure that we won this seat and, and, and working to keep it. I, I've said repeatedly, this was a true team effort, and uh, it was great having Swing Left on our team. Well, the demographics here in Orange County are rapidly changing. The area, as I said, we used to refer to as behind the Orange Curtain, yeah. um, now is uh, has a Democratic majority. And in fact, in California, Republicans are third-party status. We have Democrats, no party preference, and then Republicans. And I remember at the Marissa Tomei event, again, it's the third time I dropped her name, um, you were telling me, we were talking about early returns and uh, what you were saying, and I remember you talking about the no party preference, the independent votes, and that you'd seen a lot from younger demographics coming in that made you feel very optimistic about where we were going to be on Tuesday. And, of course, that was prescient. That was correct. Mm-hmm. Um, how do we get more of these independents, people who aren't identifying as Democrats but are voting with Democrats, to identify with the Democratic Party, to jump in and, and register as Dems? Yeah, so the the interesting thing, to, to kind of go back to the beginning of what you're talking about, Orange County, you are correct, has now registered more Democrats than Republicans, which is mind-boggling to think. Maybe not 48, though. Is 48? Exactly. Okay. 48th is a Sorry. different story. Right. 48th, there's still an 8.5% Republican registration advantage. Okay. So this is already shaping up to be one of the toughest races in the country again. The NRCC has put me at the top of the list of seats they want to take back. So we and they've already recruited somebody who has raised uh, more money than every other Republican challenger in the country, but one. Wow, uh, she's number two nationally. So it's going to be another battle. Um, so it is important that we attract those independents that you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we we need to do uh, three things. We need to get the vote out, which is always important, and uh, we need to resonate with those independents and keep them on our side, because as you correctly pointed out, that is now the second largest voting block in the state. Right. Uh, Republicans are third. And also do a good job of continuing to bring in uh, moderate Republicans. And uh, it, you know, if we do those three things, we should be good. And one of those things, as far as getting that vote out, is making sure that we're getting people registered. Yeah. And um, uh, the registration work needs to start now. It needed to start six months ago. It needs to continue um, all the way up until, well, not Election Day. You Um, sound like you're on our campaign because that's exactly (laughs) what we're telling the uh, Democratic Party here. You got to start getting the registrations. It's what we need to do. And as activists, as a group like Swing Left Mm -hmm. or Outside or even the campaigns, you know, um, know, you've got a lot to do. And we're going to talk about the stuff you're doing right now. But I always look at where are the holes? Where are the places where we can fit in and make the biggest impact? And voter registration is really it because, you know, campaigns don't always have the capacity to do a full-fledged, you know, voter reg push. So this is a place where where we can help and um, register more Democrats. Right. Absolutely. It doesn't surprise me that that they're raising so much money for your opponent because they're right in your backyard. Some of the largest Republican donors in the country live in your district. So that must be an interesting balance. I mean, do you communicate? How how do you communicate with your or or do you at all (laughs) with that constituency of yours? Well, I do. And and we do have a lot of support from Republicans. And uh, I like to point out to them that you've you got to get away from whether there is a D or an R next to people's names mm-hmm. and look at the individual. And if their values match up with your values, then support them. And you know, I come from the business world. I've created businesses and, and managed businesses of up to 10,000 employees. And uh, you know, I've got a business background. I know what it's like to sign personal guarantees and risk everything to create jobs. Right. And my opponent does it. She's lived off the taxpayer's dollar her uh, virtually her entire career. So if they will stop and, and meet me and hear me, uh, they'll find that they probably have somebody who lines up with their values better than a person who is, in all uh, intents and purposes, a Trumper. Right, right. Okay, so let's talk about the work you're doing now before we close right. out. Um, 
As you mentioned, you're a member of the House Oversight Committee. You're the chair of the Subcommittee on the Environment, which is just the most important existential uh, exactly. problem we have, and uh, especially working against, not with, an administration that denies climate science. Recently, Trump has been slamming Gavin Newsom for bad forest management uh, in response to these brush fires, not forest fires. So how does, how does your work counter that? What are you doing in your subcommittee on the environment? We're covering a lot of areas. The main narrative that we are focused on is climate change. And we are doing three phases of hearings. Uh, each phase has multiple hearings, and it is past, present, and future. Past, what did we know, when did we know it, and why didn't we do anything about it? Mm-hmm. Uh, present, very focused on uh, doing the analyti- analytics to calculate the true human cost and economic cost of climate change due to more severe weather events. Uh, the economic cost is pretty easy to figure out. The human cost Uh, is a little more difficult. Uh, Unfortunately, yes, you can uh, quickly understand how many people have died and how many people have been displaced from their homes, but it's a little bit harder uh, getting the true impact on health. As an example, wildfires Mm. cause greater uh, impact on asthma in those types of conditions. So uh, documenting that. And then the future, really painting two very distinct uh, paths, Uh, one uh, nirvana and one apocalyptic. And uh, throughout that process, what we're trying to also help people understand is that um, we need to get the right economic incentives under our tax code aligned with the outcomes we want. So approximately for every dollar we've provided in incentives for renewable energy, we've provided $80 for the fossil fuel. Hmm. If we had parity there, uh, you would actually see the energy companies leading the way in moving us to renewable um, energies. And, and I think that's a key component here. Uh, one of the other challenges we have with the, uh, uh, the Republicans is the uh, uh, idea that we, they would put out there that, that we can't afford to do this. And, and, and that's the reason we're trying to show the economic cost being actually cheaper addressing the impact of climate change than not doing anything at all. Okay, well, we have to wrap up, but before we do, without going down the wormhole on impeachment uh, so much, and um, I mean, just uh, a few hours ago as we're taping this, um, Adam Schiff has released transcripts of the closed-door testimony. We're learning a lot more. Where do you think this is all going to go? So I have been in the room where most of these um, depositions are taking place. And I think it's really important for the American public to understand a couple of things. Uh, first, it's not at all as described by the Republicans. Right. Uh, this is in the House Intel chambers. Uh, it is in a hearing room. And in that room, you will find approximately 60 or 70 people. It includes counsel for the Republican minority of oversight, as well as counsel for the Democratic majority of the of, of the three committees: oversight, um, House Intel, and um, Foreign uh, Relations. The members of those three committees are mm-hmm. all invited and allowed to participate in those meetings. Right after the witness is sworn in, the witness typically is offered. Uh, an opening statement. At the end of that opening statement, the Democratic majority then questions for one hour, then the Republican minority questions for one hour, and then that continues in 45-minute blocks until everybody has had their fill of asking questions. So to suggest that there's no counsel or no representation uh, by Republicans is a flat-out lie. So Getz was just having a pizza and Chick-fil-A party for no reason. You got it. Exactly. (laughs) And the rules that are being used are the exact same rules that were established by the Republicans under Benghazi. So, uh, again, I can't emphasize enough what's happening here is consistent with House rules. What we have found, you know, clearly with the the, uh, call memorandum and the whistleblower's report, we Mm -hmm. have a clear idea of what was going on. What we didn't know. And what we are learning from these depositions is how extensive the setup and cover-up by Trump and the administration has been. He didn't just shoot off his mouth 
in that conversation on July 25th with the Ukrainian president. This was a long orchestrated effort through Giuliani, Ukrainian associates, uh, Ambassador Sondland, and others that the setup to this is incredibly extensive. And as these transcripts get released, I believe the American public is going to get their first glimpse of uh, uh, just how extensive it is. And then on the back end, we've got the cover-up. And again, the efforts by the president and the administration to cover up what transpired to move things to a more secure server, to modify the call memorandum, uh, all evidence of an effort to make sure the American public uh, didn't find out the truth about how corrupt this president is. And of course, the vote for the you know, procedural rules really around an impeachment inquiry was on party lines. That's to be expected. Why would a Republican stick their neck out for that particular vote? Um, but I mean, I think the answer is no, personally. But do you see any any movement? I mean, we need to make the case to the general public. But do you see any of your Republican colleagues, people that you're working with on some of this bipartisan legislation, friends that you have made there? Is there anyone who's going to vote for uh, impeachment at the end of the, this process? Yeah, great question. And when we get to articles of impeachment, uh, you know, assuming that there will be a vote on that, will any Republicans in the House come over? And Steve, I'm not sure. Um, uh, it, it, it's kind of going back to what you talked about earlier, the demise of the Republican Party. And they are making a political calculation that if we vote for articles of impeachment, we lose the 30 to 35 percent base right. um, that we have. And we're not going to gain that in independents and other Republicans by voting for it. And so I think for a lot of them, uh, it's unfortunate that the oath they took to the Constitution and how they interpret it is determined by polling political wins and who's sitting in the White House. Because the idea that you could somehow justify criminal activity by the president as the president in the White House is beyond me. So I can hear uh, the silent pull from Alyssa behind me, and I've interrupted your call time, but I want to ask you one last question. What brings you the most hope right now? What brings me the most hope is the 2020 election and uh, the massive grassroots support that we have across the United States to make realistic change happen. I, I think America just wants to get back to regular order. And unfortunately, we don't have that with this president. And if we uh, hold the House, pick up some seats, uh, get the White House, and with a little luck, get the Senate, it will be a, a good opportunity for our country to get back on track, both for our citizens here as well as our allies around the world. Congressman Harley Ruta, thank you so much for chatting with me. My pleasure, and thanks again for everything you and Swing Left have done. Before the interview, we talked a little bit about making a plan for 2020. And if you've ever canvassed, then you probably know that in the tail end of an election cycle, you're going door to door or you're phoning or texting voters and asking them, what is your plan to vote on election day? And the idea behind that is if they share the plan with you and think through, oh, I'm going to drive before I go to work and I know where my polling place is, they're more likely to follow through with that. Exactly. And so what we want our listeners to do is start to think about what their plan to be an activist is going to be for the 2020 election cycle. That's right. What's your plan to volunteer? I like it. So if you have been thinking about doing some volunteering, but haven't had time to do it yet, start thinking now about when you're going to volunteer and what exactly that's going to look like and who you're going to bring with you and all of that good stuff. Yeah, exactly. Think about a couple of things. Like, first of all, our time is really valuable. We all lead very busy lives. Right. We have work and families, a lot of stuff to juggle. But you do have time to do this. It's just a matter of figuring out where that is for you, when you can set aside that time. Yeah, once campaigns get really up and running, they're going to have offices in most places where you can walk in 
and find something to do. And so thinking through that and knowing that there's going to be times that are available as we get closer, like more options and opportunities, um, that could work. You know what I did at the beginning of the midterms? I went on a real housewives cleanse and I made a commitment that I wasn't going to watch any more real housewives episodes. And that freed up a ton of my time. For some of this, that's, that's really an easy commitment to make. <laughs> but I'm just saying, maybe you have a bad habit, which I think watching The Real Housewives is, and you, you, you know, replace that with phone banking. <laughs> <laughs> it's a really good point. There's, uh, and not to say there's not value in, in just fun, mindless television. Sure, we need that. But, uh, but let's balance it out with some activism. And balance then, is a great word. Balance, it's, it's elusive. We never fully <laughs> find it, but we can always work towards it. Wow. It's my deep thought <laughs> for the day. Um, so, yeah, think about what your plan is. We're going to give be giving you tools. Email us if there is a tool or skill that you want to learn mm-hmm. or that you need more information on that we could be helpful with. Right. Uh, because we want you all to be the most effective volunteers as you can be. And of course, invite your friends, invite your friends. It's so much more fun with your friends when you guys can do it as a community. Uh, Plus, it's a force multiplier. Mm -hmm. Like, just think about all the work we can do. If you were able to successfully engage, we mentioned at the top of the show, invite five people to subscribe to the podcast, okay? Mm -hmm. If you were inviting five people to come do a letter writing party with you. Right. And even if three of them did it, now you've got four of you guys writing letters to register voters in these super states. That's a force multiplier. If we did that all over the country, we would get a lot of Democrats registered. And it just takes you... Making that step, reaching out, and having that conversation with your friends. Yeah, and um, don't forget, especially when it comes to politics, is that people need to be invited to do something more than once. So don't get frustrated if nobody shows up and every organizer knows there's a flake rate where you know somebody will tell you they're coming, they won't show up. That's totally normal. It happens all the time. Yep. So just stick with it. Ask more people than you want to show up and then you have to call them and remind them and uh, it takes a few calls. But then you've got some activist buddies. Look at that. You're an organizer. Woohoo! <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for joining us today and for stepping up and taking action. This is how we win. We want to hear from you, as we said, and we want your story. So please send us a note or even record yourself and email it to podcast at swingleft.org. Thank you to all of our subscribers. Yay. If you're not one of those folks yet... Please subscribe, rate us on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. Share us with your friends and family. This was your to-do list for today. And help us build this megaphone for the resistance. Use the hashtag HowWeWin2020. Share our page at swingleft.org slash podcast. And of course, sign up to volunteer. Thank you so much for listening. We appreciate it. And we're excited to bring you more from the field next Wednesday. We'll see you then. 